Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Joe Levy, and you're listening to Final Sessions, Harry Nilsson's Lost and Found. This is Episode 3, You've Had a Buckaroo Day. A look at how Harry worked to make his dreams of an ideal childhood come true. I'll say goodbye to all my sorrow, and by tomorrow, I'll be on my way. I guess the Lord must be in New York City. We can claim you as one of our own, right? Bro- well, I'm from New York. I'm from Brooklyn. Brooklyn, New yeah. York. And you were here long enough to have uh, have memories? <laughs> Scars, not memories. That's Harry talking to the great New York DJ Pete Fornatel in 1992. Harry was born in Brooklyn in June of 1941, six months before the United States entered World War II. Growing up, he'd always been told that his dad, Harry Sr., had died while serving in the Navy in the war. But in the spring of 1967 he made a discovery that recast the entirety of his life up until that point. His father was still alive. Harry grew up in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Bedford-Stuyvesant. And if you visit Harry's old neighborhood today, you'll find it rapidly gentrifying. At the end of the block he lived on when he was first born, there's a building under construction, there's another one being torn down, across the street there's a craft beer bar. But in the 1940s, Bed-Stuy had gone from the Great Depression into a period of urban decay that would engulf the whole city of New York by the 1970s. One time, Harry and I were both in New York at the same time, and he called me and asked me if I'd like to go out and see where he was born. It was a a highly charged emotional uh, event for both of us. That's the songwriter and arranger Van Dyke Parks, Harry's longtime friend and collaborator. The limousine took us out to Brooklyn. He couldn't give the directions, but he knew them when he got to the intersections. And we got lower and lower through more bridges and tunnels and dank alleys and back streets and garbage. And finally, we got to a place with a sooty brick wall and a sign that said, starve a rat, cover your garbage. Uh, He was shaking and weeping in the car because this was where he came from. It was obvious this was a very big reconciliation for Harry, something that he had been shelving for so long. It was the very thing that drove him, a sense of poverty. Harry's time in Brooklyn ended not long after he, his mom Betty, and his half-sister Michelle were beaten up on Halloween in 1951 when he was 10 years old. They went to California and then they came back to the East Coast and lived with family on Long Island. His mom drank a bit, and she had a habit of passing bad checks. When Harry was 15, he got a phone call from her informing him that she was taking his sister back to California. 
He decided to stay at his uncle's to finish up high school, but after he lost a summer job, he left, hitchhiked his way across the USA, and met up with his mom outside of Bakersfield. But at 15, that wasn't the last time she'd leave him with no warning. Years later, in late 1966, some early singles Harry had recorded for an independent label were collected on an album called Spotlight on Nilsson. And his mom understood that her son's burgeoning success meant there was a chance his father might reach out. So she contacted her former husband, and they decided to set things straight with their respective families. Harry learned that his parents had split in 1944. His father had remarried a year later and raised a whole other family in Patterson, New Jersey, just an hour away from Bedford-Stuyvesant. By 1966, his dad and his family were living in Florida. When Harry learned the truth, he put it in a song, and it wraps up a lifetime of pain, longing, and confusion in the 41 words of its first four lines. Well, in 1941, a happy father had a son. And by 1944, the father walks right out the door. And in 45, the mom and son were still alive. But who could tell in 46 if the two were to survive? The lyrics describe an emotional upheaval that the inescapable logic of the melody seems to solve, which creates a blueprint that Harry would follow for years to come. The idea of family and childhood charges all of the albums Harry made at the start, not just the songs he wrote, but the covers he picked. Like the Beatles' She's Leaving Home, which Harry sings from the inside out because it was his parents, both his mother and his father, who left home. His second album, Ariel Ballet, was named after stories his mom had told him about his great-grandparents on his dad's side who had an acrobatic act. The first song on that album was Daddy's Song. And you can hear it on the companion playlist to our show. It's linked in the show notes. RCA actually removed Daddy's song from Ariel Ballet after the Monkees covered it, but Harry used the same arrangement as the basis for one of his most idealized songs of childhood, the theme to The Courtship of Eddie's Father. It's called Best Friend, and in it, Harry sings from the point of view of a single father raising a son that he describes as his one-boy cuddly toy. My up, my down my pride and joy. It seems to me that it's pretty clear that Harry was profoundly disturbed by the fact that he was abandoned by his father. That's Jimmy Webb, the singer and songwriter responsible for classics like Wichita Lineman and By the Time I Get to Phoenix, and also one of Harry's closest friends. Van Dyke Parks put it this way. To not have had all the conversations with a father that one would want would create creates quite a a longing heart, and he had that. But on those early albums, along with songs he wrote about his absent father, you can also find songs that show how devoted he was to his mother. There's Freckles, an old vaudeville song that she taught him, and there's also Little Cowboy, a lullaby that she wrote and used to sing to him. And there's another song she wrote that he covered as well, Marching Down Broadway, which Harry used to say the greatest of all Tin Pan Alley songwriters Irving Berlin had offered his mother $1,000 for the publishing rights. I think that he had a a very rich childhood. I mean, we've heard terrible stories about his penury, you know, he and his mother and sister. They they had no money in New York. Terrible stories about Harry's impoverished youth. But in fact, if you look at it on a different plane, 
that is a musical plane. He had a rich childhood because his mother was quite informed about all aspects of music. The more sophisticated diet of big band and so forth and popular music before it popped. Uh, he had that. It wasn't just Harry's past that informed his work. It was the whole history of American popular music. He was a musicologist. You know, he would sit there with headphones and he would hear, you must remember this. Da, 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 da. A smile is just a... He would hear that and go, whoa. That's Mark Hudson, the producer of Lost and Found, talking about the classicism that runs through Harry's work. And touches of vaudeville and songwriting classicism were in there long before he collaborated with Frank Sinatra arranger Gordon Jenkins on A Little Touch of Schmielsen in the Night, an album of standards in 1973. He had an equal retentive gift in, um, you know, remembering second verses to odd songs and ballads long forgotten. He could remember what had happened and he could represent it in a, a present tense, as he did with a little touch of Schmilson in the night. That was all about nostalgia, but it wasn't nostalgia, which of course I understand associate that with the pain associated with home. And Harry was a living totem to the incredible sorrows associated with, with a sense of place or lack of same. Of the 12 classics on A Little Touch of Schmielsen in the Night, only two were written after 1941. Most were from the 20s and 30s, and some were older than that. I mean, these weren't the songs of Harry's childhood. They were the songs of his mother's childhood. In the fall of 1976, Harry was in London. He was there to help with a stage version of The Point, the 1971 animated film that was one of his many dreams of a different childhood. But he was also there to start making that dream a reality. In 1976, Harry and his girlfriend of three years, Una, had gotten married. In November, they'd welcomed their first child, Beau. This was Harry's third marriage and his second son. His first son, Zach, had been born in early 1971. By Zach's own account, Harry was a doting father at the very start. My dad wrote this thing on a piece of paper for when I was a baby. He, it was just a note to me, even though I couldn't read or and I wasn't old enough to understand it or anything. He wrote this note which basically told me how much he loved me. And reading it now, uh, it just makes me realize that he really did. Dear Zach, I stood over you and watched you sleep for 30 minutes this morning. Someday you will know how I feel as I write these words. You're beautiful. You moved your toes and feet proportionally to the noise I made. You're on top of your blanket, an orange blanket with yellow daisies. And your pacifier was an inch from your mouth. It had obviously been released with sleep. I love you. Big Daddy Schmelson. But the marriage didn't survive the rise to stardom that came with Nilsson Schmelson and Harry filed for divorce in 1973. Zach grew up with his mother, Diane. There's the 1941 thing, almost mirrored his own life, and it, it's, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not how he intended it to be, <laughs> uh, but it did. You know, in 1941, a happy father had a son. 1944, his father walked right out the door, and that's almost exactly what happened, except in the 70s. Harry hadn't provided one of the things he most longed for, the deep connection between a father and a son. But now, in 1976, 
he had a chance to do things differently. Harry was the dad that every kid wished that he or she had. He was an amazing dad. Uh, he was, he nurtured the kids. He played with them, spoke with them, listened to them. That's Harry's good friend, Lee Blackman, attorney for the Nilsson estate and an executive producer of Lost and Found. Bo was the first of six children Harry and Una would have between 1976 and 1991. Four boys and two girls. With the boys, he would have what he called dad and lad time, where he'd listen to all their problems and concerns and give them advice. He didn't really have a father and had been told the story that his father had been killed in World War II and only found out much later that that was not true, that his father was alive and had a second family. And it it could be that he wanted to be the most perfect dad because he didn't have a dad. When Harry began to focus more on family, he made a lot of changes, but he didn't change completely. He still had nights out, raucous ones with friends. I believe there were two Harrys in that regard. There was the Harry who would be out with the folks partying and doing those kinds of things. And then there was Harry the dad. And when Harry the dad was home, Harry was 100% the best dad any kid could ever want. To transform into Harry the dad, he put music mostly behind him. In London in early 1977, not long after Bo was born, Harry began recording what would end up being his final album for RCA. And he'd only release one more record after that, Flash Harry in 1980. Though he worked hard campaigning for gun control after the death of John Lennon, and also he set up a film production company, he sometimes referred to the 80s as his retirement. In a radio interview in 1990, he claimed he'd gotten rid of his guitar and piano 10 years before that in order to focus on his family. That might have been more of an indication of his intention than strictly true. He had a grand piano in the house in Bel Air, in the main room. He also had built this tiny little studio uh, where he had his electric keyboard and his uh, recording equipment as well, so he could work in there. I can remember, you know, he had a tape recording machine, he had a keyboard, he had some tools to work with. That's Harry's son, Kifo, who plays bass on Lost and Found. The family life and the music life, I think he liked to compartmentalize them. I think that he liked, as an artist, as a musician, to have that over here, and as a family man, to have that over there. And I think that helped him a lot, both as a father, but also just as a creative as well. I think that he did have a, a different take on his process. I think about his beginnings and where he came from and how he began writing songs in the first place. And that was always a very, very personal space for him. That was always a late hours of the day, you know, maybe just him or late hours in the studio with musicians that he'd trust and worked with. It wasn't something that he necessarily had to bring home. If he didn't bring the music home, he was still bringing home into the music. Lost and Found has one of Harry's most lovely and uncomplicated songs of childhood. It's called Lullaby. That's the dad song. He's, he's a dad singing to his kids, you know, trying to you know, put your tin soldiers away and sleep well. Lullaby is a goodnight wish from a father who, having raised a family of six kids, has seen a couple of thousand bedtimes. You can hear a direct connection to Little Cowboy, the song his mother used to sing him when Harry is singing to a child who's had a buckaroo day. This is a sweet dream song, a reassurance from a father to a child that it's safe to go to sleep. There are no monsters here. 
And just as he wrote to baby Zach about watching him sleep, he promises to stand guard in this song. It may have been too personal. According to Mark Hudson, Harry was reluctant to venture into this territory and he had to be convinced to actually record Lullaby. When guys get older, you think that you have to do something that's relevant and hip. If you're, I'm old, I'm losing the step, I better get involved in this. And Harry had already done the point. Me and my arrow. People, that you're talking about my best friend, cuddly toy. You can name even some of the Popeye stuff. It always had that sort of theatrical, beautiful, whimsical, childlike thing about it. And he just goes, you know, I think I should move on and and what, do it, write a song like The Screaming Trees? You're Harry Nilsson. You, know, you don't have to be all grunge and wear a plaid shirt and no longer wash your hair. And then I said, and you know what else? The fact, the way that I know you as a great dad and a beautiful husband and a good friend of mine, this song to me tells me more of how I know you than an audience doesn't. And he was that Irish dad. And there it was. There's nothing under your bed. What kid wouldn't want to hear, you know, your army's gone to bed and all these beautiful lyrics. I wish my dad would have sung a song like that to me because I was constantly frightened. And all of a sudden I hear this and everything is okay. And it's just beautiful. And he sang all the background. And in the end, he goes, because I love you. And he went went into one of his, ooh, and then, ooh, which I thought was so cute. Like, if that was my dad saying that to me, I would have laughed. So I said, we got to keep that. And he goes, why? I said, because that's how you ended it. He goes, okay. It's on the record that way. And I love you. Harry sang about dreams a lot. In the Puppy Song from 1969, he called them nothing more than wishes. And here they're a little more than that. He imagines a dream world where a sleeping child wakes up to a tune played by a toy band. Maybe it's one of Harry's tunes. And there's something else. The dreamer isn't alone. Harry's there too. Watching them sleep. Meeting them in their dreams. Waking them in the morning. In the dream, in the music he found a way to make the wish come true. Thanks for listening to Episode 3 of Final Sessions. Next time, we'll take a look at Harry's songs of love and death, which sometimes are the same song. Final Sessions, Harry Nilsson's Lost and Found, was written and narrated by me, Joe Levy. Our executive producers are Brian Jones for Bang Music and Audio Post and Sandy Smolens for Audiation. The show was recorded and mixed by Nick Cipriano and Paul Vitolinch, with additional recording and editing by Sandy Smolens. Harry's 1992 interview with the great New York DJ Pete Fornatel is courtesy of the Pete Fornatel Estate. If you're interested in Harry, you'll want to check out the documentary Who is Harry Nilsson and Why is Everybody Talking About Him? I also drew on the biography Nilsson, The Life of a Singer-Songwriter by Alan Shipton. Final Sessions is a production of Warner Chapel Music and Warner Music Group. Special thanks to Lee Blackman, Brad Rosenberger, and Ashley Winton, without whom this podcast and this album wouldn't exist. 
To go in-depth on the songs we talked about in this episode, you'll want to listen to our companion playlist, which is linked in our show notes. Be sure to check out Harry Nilsson's final album, Lost and Found, on Omnivore Recordings when it's released November 22nd. Mm-hmm.